Could I ask everyone to take their seats, please? Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 21 through 41. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. The word of the Lord. So this fall, our series is on the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapters 1 through 12, so the first half of, of the book of Acts. And in those chapters, we're told the story of, of the first church, the church at Jerusalem. Studying the first church helps us address and answer questions like, 
What makes a church a church? What should the church be all about? And as we've been looking at this the past couple weeks, we've seen that as Luke begins the story of the church, he's very careful and he's very intentional there at the very beginning to tell us, don't read this, first of all, as the acts of the church. And therefore, don't read this, first of all, as the acts that you're supposed to do. Read this, first of all, as the acts of Jesus, who is continuing to do things and to teach. Read this, first of all, as the acts of the Holy Spirit. So what we're reading in the book of Acts is essentially the story of how Jesus built the church. We're looking at his design, his plans for what the church is and what the church should be then and now. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. So there, we read the story of the first day of the church. It was the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the church, and the power and the presence of God came upon the church in a new way, and that's the day that everything began. That was the first day Christianity was born. Today, we're going to look at the first Christian sermon that was ever preached. Next week, we're going to look at the first church in action. What were the relationships like? What did they, what did they do? So if we look at Acts 2 as a whole, the whole chapter, if we're using the metaphor of, of a blueprint and design plans, Acts 2 is like the frame. Acts 1, we said, was kind of like the foundation where everything was built upon prayer and waiting. And then Acts 2 shows us the frame, what went up first. It was first the Holy Spirit. Second, it was this sermon, the gospel. And third, it was a life together community that was created. If one of these is missing, without that frame, then there is no real church. Take away one, or as one of those starts to deteriorate, then the church begins to, to falter, to collapse and fall. All three are needed. So we looked at the Holy Spirit last week. Today, we're going to look at the first sermon ever. If you want to know whether you like an artist, if somebody says, hey, I listen to this artist, this group, uh, you got to check it out. They're really good. Uh, one way that you could start if this, if this musical group or artist has a number of albums is you could check out their greatest hits album, right? That's a good way to decide, well, am I going to like this artist? Well, I should start with their, with their best songs. Or if, if you listen to Spotify, if you're a Spotify user, you'll look at their top listens and go, let me listen uh, to the song that everybody likes and make your decision that way. This sermon in Acts 2, we could think about it as one of the greatest hits. It's one of the best all-time sermons. It's the first sermon that sets everything into motion. This is the speech, you could consider it this way, this is the speech that began and started the Christian movement that we're a part of today. And, as you see the results, this was one of the most all-time effective sermons ever preached. 3,000 people didn't just walk the aisle or raise a hand or say, I have a decision to make here. Their lives were transformed. They became a part of this new movement and this new community. So let me ask you this. In light of that, you heard it read 
John read the passage here, Acts 2. When you are listening to it, you have it right in front of you. As you look at it, do you feel like, were you struck by this sermon and felt like, greatest all time? I want to hear more of this sermon. Keep going, Peter. Let's read it. Let's hear it. I need more. Is that how it struck you? Well, I'll make a, uh, a pastoral confession as I was studying it on Monday. That's not how it struck me. I was reading it, and I was just like, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, I've heard a lot of this before. Why might this sermon, which had such a great impact, which is, according to Acts, the sermon and the speech that started everything in Christianity... Why didn't it hit us so hard? Why didn't it hit me so hard? And I think the answer is because it's so different than what we think a great sermon is or should be. We're not used to, and I would argue we are not all that interested in sermons where we have to ask the question that everybody asked in verse 37. Look at verse 37. But what should we do? Isn't a sermon all about telling people what they should do? Stop doing this. Do more of this. You're not doing enough of this, and you're not doing this right. Isn't that what a sermon is? How could a greatest hit sermon leave people asking the question, what should we do? Isn't that a sign of a bad sermon? The first sermon ever would tell us, no. It's actually the other way around. We have it upside down. This is a sign of a great sermon. This is a sign of a true gospel sermon. Here's how I want to look at it this morning. Peter's sermon, if you notice, it flows all from one verse. It flows all from one sentence. Peter essentially is just taking verse 21 and peace by peace, he's explaining it. And verse 21, where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is Peter quoting the prophet Joel, Joel 2.32. He's saying, this is what's happening now. This is what's true because of Jesus, and let me explain that to you. That's what his whole sermon is about. So we're going to take that verse and look at how Peter unpacks it throughout this sermon. So first, the first word is everyone. And there's so much packed into this one word. The first thing we see about this first sermon is Peter is very clear. He's crystal clear. He wants to say Jesus is inclusive to all, to everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Everyone has equal need. Everyone is equally welcome. And everyone who believes has equal status and standing in this new community of Jesus. In the verses preceding, we looked at this a little bit last week in Joel chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. We see that in these last days, that Peter says, these last days have come, there's going to be a new inclusion. Israel's never seen it. They could barely even grasp it. The world has never seen an inclusion like this. It will have all people as a part of this community. They'll all receive the Spirit equally, sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, both men and women. And we see the Holy Spirit was poured out 
equally, regardless of gender, age, social class, and as demonstrated by the languages spoken, race, all nations. You know, Luke is the author of this book, Acts. He was the only and is the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament. And if you read Luke, if you read Acts, you'll see that Luke has a very special place in his writing. For those who feel like they're on the outside, for those who feel like they're on the outskirts, for those who have been treated like they're not a part of the inner circle, outside of the people that God values, outside of the people that God uses. If you read Luke and Acts, you'll see Luke is telling us stories about the poor and the outcasts and women and Gentiles who were all included by Jesus and in his new community. Look at verse 38. Peter's conclusion connects all the way back to his introduction. He says, this promise is for you. It's for your children and it's for all who were far off. And Luke is saying, that's me. That was me. I was one of those far off people, but now I've been included in the heart and the center of everything by Jesus. He makes sure his readers see how Jesus is the most inclusive force the world had ever seen and has ever known. Those who are privileged and advantaged in society because of their gender and age and social class and race were humbled by Jesus. Those who were disadvantaged and oppressed were lifted up as equals. And the gospel produced communities with a radical and unheard of equality. That was a part of the magnetism of these new communities. A quick thought for us, an application. A Christian or a church that treats anyone as far off, outside, or less than, or unequal, and that is indifferent to people being treated that way, is in denial of the gospel. Jesus is inclusive to all. Jesus is inclusive to all, but at the same time, Jesus is offensive to all. Peter says, it's for everyone. The implication being, everyone needs this. Everyone has to have this. Which means everyone, no exceptions, needs to call upon the name of the Lord. So everyone is equally desperate, equally in need, and equally sinful. The ground is level. Look at the audience. Who is Peter preaching to? You might need to flip open your Bible if you want to see this in the text. It's in chapter five, or in, in verse 5 of chapter 2. The audience of the sermon were devout Jewish people. Not just any Jewish people, not just any Israelites. These were the devout Israelites, people from every nation. They were the religiously devoted people. They were the best of the best from the world because they had gathered here for the festival of Pentecost to worship. And Peter says, you, like everyone else, you need to be saved. In verse 40, he says, you are a part of this twisted and corrupt generation like everyone else. Your devout religiousness, it doesn't mean you're an exception. You need this like everyone. None of their religious devotion could save them, Peter says. They just needed to call out 
just like those who they thought were way far off. These were people who thought, I'm pretty close. I'm devout. I'm here at Pentecost. I'm here to worship. I'm close. Peter says, you're just as far off as them. The gospel is offensive to devout moral people who think what they do sets them apart from others. That's the audience, but also keep in mind to whom Acts was written. Peter is recording the sermon, but he's recording it and writing it down and giving it to a specific audience to read it. Who was it? It was Christians. It was people who were a part of the church. And they might have thought, like we might, might have thought when we were listening to this sermon, I've heard this before. This is a story of Jesus. I've heard it. It's precious. It's amazing. But I've, I've heard this before. When, Luke, are you going to tell me what I need to do next? You wrote the whole gospel, Luke, about what Jesus did. And now you're writing another book full of, a, of sermons that tell me more about Jesus and all that he did. When are we going to get to the part of what I need to do? Did you know this is one of, by one count, 19 sermons in the book of Acts? Acts is full of, of the acts of what the church did and what Jesus did through the church, but it's full of sermons, and it's full of Luke recording these sermons. They're all different. They're all slightly different. They're given to different people in different contexts, but this has been studied by many scholars, and they've said, what is the common thread here with all these sermons in the book of Acts? And the common thread is, you may be able to guess it, it's Jesus. Every single one of these sermons is all about Jesus. Here is who he was, and here is what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection especially, and his ascension. What you will notice is surprisingly lacking in the book of Acts is any sermon, by my count, there's not one, about what we need to do. There's not one sermon about you, not about what you do. Every sermon is about him, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. There are definitely implications. There are definitely responses to who Jesus is and what he has done. But first, here's what Luke is saying. We need to build the frame. The frame needs to be strong before we build anything else into our churches or into our lives. And this is offensive, isn't it, to the activist within us? to the one who keeps saying, to our heart that keeps saying, well, what do I need to do? Isn't there something for me to do? Is it that easy? Is it too good to be true? Those who are doers, those who want to treat Jesus as a box on a checklist and say, I've checked that off, and now I can move on to something else. This sermon and the rest of the book of Acts says no. There's something you need to be offended by, and that is you can't do anything I'm going to tell you over and over again about what Jesus has done. That's just the first word, everyone. Peter goes on to explain the second phrase in verse 21. Everyone who calls on. Everyone who calls on. There's two things that this means about Jesus and the gospel. The first is calling on Jesus is more effortless than anything. This is more effortless than anything. What are we to do? Okay, I'll tell you what to do. If you want to know what to do, call on. Just call. Call on the name of the Lord. Later he, 
he explains what this looks like. There's a repentance and a baptism that is a part of that calling on, a, a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Throughout the Bible, this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, is repeated. It, it appears for the first time in the book of Genesis. And what does it mean? It means looking outside of ourselves for help, calling upon somebody else. And Darian mentioned this in our call to worship. And we all know if we're parents or even if we're not parents, if, um, if we've ever been in a situation where we've heard somebody calling out to us desperately, we know the difference between somebody calling our name and saying, Eric, I need your help. And maybe one of my kids might say, Daddy, you know, they just want me to like turn on a video game or come see one of their little uh, creations or what bugs they've collected or something like that, which is important. But then there's another kind of cry that if you hear from your spouse or you hear from your kids or you hear from your friends, that is like, Eric! Uh, no, I don't hear that cry very often. Something's going on and I need to put everything down and run. That's the calling out that Peter's talking about here. It's a calling out in desperation and in helplessness upon the Lord. Further, Peter goes on to say in verse 39, guess what? Did you know that those who call on the name of the Lord are actually the ones that God has called to first? Verse 39 says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all, and for those who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call to himself. So what are we to do? We're to hear the call of God, and we're to call on him, and we will be saved. Repentance is hearing God calling you, and you coming back to him. A reorienting of your life to him, not away from him. That's it. Peter says it's effortless. You're turning around, you hear the call of God, and you call out to him and say, help. There's no code of conduct to agree to, no religious practices to perform, no boxes of doctrine to check first. You call on the name of the Lord. We want, don't we? We want a message about how to. We want a message that says 10 steps to, the secret to. And in verse 37, when the, when the crowd says, what do we do? Peter says, do. Haven't you heard my sermon? Haven't you heard what I've been telling you? I didn't say you needed to do anything. I've been telling you all about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for you. You need to hear that. You just turn your life toward him. He will do it for you and in you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Let your name, let your name, who you are, be washed, submerged, and plunged and cleansed by all that he has done. Be submerged into him. Be washed by his name, all that he has done. It's like water pouring on you. It's effortless. It's more effortless than anything. But calling on Jesus is also more painful than anything. Where do I get that? It's in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. It says they were cut to the heart. And this is what makes all the difference. 
It's not enough to understand and agree with our minds alone. We have to be cut to the heart. To become a Christian, we have to be cut to the heart. To grow as a Christian, there has to be a piercing. It's more painful than anything. This is what happened to thousands of people, Acts says, that day in verse 37. 3,000 people were cut to the heart. To become a Christian, to grow as a Christian, it's not something you just decide upon. It's not just a decision, a casual decision you make. Like, I'm deciding to, to do a new diet, or I'm taking on a new self-help program or advice. The Word has to cut. The Word has to pierce us in our deepest place, in our core, in our heart. No one will call out until they've first been cut. What was it that pierced them? I think it was two things in particular that Peter said. The first is this. Jesus died because of my sin. Because of my sin. He says it twice in, in verses 23 and 36. It's very interesting because he tells this crowd here, you, you partnered with lawless people to nail Jesus to a tree and kill him. And then in verse 36, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. But what's interesting, and at first hard to, to make sense of, is that this crowd there on Pentecost, it says they were from all over the world, the nations are listed earlier in Acts 2, these were not the same people that were a part of the crowd that crucified Jesus during Passover. Maybe a few of them were the same people. These were not the same people that cried out, crucify him. So what is Peter saying? This is where sin becomes personal. This is where it becomes very personal, where we say, Jesus, the Lord, the creator who made me, who took on humanity to come rescue me, it was my sin that crucified him. Because I chose to reject him, I would rather God be dead than a part of my life. It was my sin that crucified him. But it was also, at the same time, not only my sin that crucified him, we see the other thing that Peter wanted to be crystal, crystal clear on was this. It was his love that held him to the cross. Jesus died because of my sin, but Jesus died because of his love for me, the sinner. This was his plan all along. It says, he was delivered up, verses 23 and following, according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. From eternity past, woven into the story of the world and into our stories, and throughout the entire Bible, we see death and resurrection was God. It was his plan all along. How would he get people who are intent on running from him to call on him? How we, would he get people who are so impressed by our works and what we do to realize there's nothing they could do? It says, Peter says, the love of God for you becomes personal when you realize he had planned it all along. That even though you would rather him be dead than a part of your life, that he would die for you in your place. This is where it becomes personal. This is not an abstract doctrine of the love of God. This is God's eternal 
love set upon you, calling you to him. It was my sin that put him there. It was his love that put him there. That's what cut the heart. That's what pierced the heart. In Joel chapter 2, this is where Peter um, was preaching from, the, the, the second chapter of the prophet Joel. There earlier in that, in that prophet, Joel says to Israel, rend your hearts, tear your hearts, not your garments. We prayed that during our prayer of confession. Why would God ask us to do something so painful to the core of our being, to rend and tear our hearts? We see that it's because in the cutting and the piercing and in the rending of our hearts, he can pour in his spirit. He can pour in his love, his delight, his forgiveness, and make us whole. Calling on Jesus is more effortless than anything. It's more painful than anything. Everyone who calls on, thirdly, the name of the Lord. This first sermon by Peter shows us how we become Christians. It's by being introduced to Jesus, not by changing our lives, making a, a decision or resolving to do better or to do anything. It's turning to him and turning our lives over to him. This first sermon by Peter also shows us how we grow as Christians. Let me share an illustration. If you've been here maybe as a part of this church for a year or two and you came to a welcome dinner, maybe you were at our home and we fed you dinner, we spoke to you, you took our, our membership class and you were a part of that, which I, which I teach, and we've interacted a number of times and, and say after the service this morning, I come up to you and I say, hey, we were talking, we're just sharing about our week and I say, hold on, what was your name again? How would you feel? You probably wouldn't feel very known or valued or important. And you would feel like, wait, wait, didn't I? <laughs> Wasn't I at your house? Haven't we had a conversation before? Feel like we need to like reintroduce ourselves and start all over again. And if I said, you know what, that's just no big deal. It's just a name. I just forgot. Like we could just move on. You would say, it's not a small thing. It's my name. It's me. My name is a part of who I am. It represents who I am. And in the Bible, name is like that. Name is equal to person. Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Name is him. Name is Jesus. Who he is, all he's done. It's the name of the Lord that has power to transform us. It's the name of the Lord that is the beauty that compels us. It is the name of the Lord that pierces our hearts. It's him. He changes us. All matters of faith and life and struggle and sin, how we can endure, how we can grow, how we can help others to grow is by remembering his name is by being reintroduced to him over and over again. There's two aspects to this that Peter talks about. The first is everything must come back to the name of Jesus. He also says everything must come under the name of Jesus. But first, everything must come back to the name of Jesus. There's a curious phrase, I noticed this in my study, that Peter repeats three times. 22, if you look at this, 32 and 36. He doesn't just say Jesus. He says this Jesus, this one. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're here and you're not sure about Jesus, if you still have questions, we're so glad 
that you are here. And I would say to you, from this first sermon, make sure that the focus of your search and your investigation and your exploring is on this Jesus. This Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of American cultural Christianity, not the Jesus of any other cultural creation, not the Jesus of any political party, not the Jesus of hearsay. Just pick one of the Gospels and look at this Jesus. Make sure your focus is laser-focused on him. To my Christian friends, especially my Christian friends here who might feel burnt out or tired or discouraged or just plain apathetic, if in your Bible reading and in your study you don't encounter this Jesus, if in your praying you forget that you are praying to this Jesus, if in your efforts to be better, if in your hopes for Jesus to do something for you in your life, you lose sight of this Jesus, what happens? We have the tendency in the human heart to turn what is and should always be relational into something transactional. I'm doing this for you. What are you going to do for me? I'm carrying out these things, so what am I getting in return? It is never, and it is never meant to be transactional. And always, in every time, and in everything, relational. The whole Bible, Peter says, the whole story is about his name. He brings up a couple psalms here, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. What, what, what Peter is doing, he's saying, you guys know the story. This is your story, Israel. This is the Old Testament. Did you know that this Jesus, this Jesus is what the whole Bible is all about. The story you know and love and cherish. He talks about David and uh, the Feast of Pentecost, I learned to this day and, and then in that day as well, was the day that Israel commemorated the death of David, the greatest king in their nation's history. What Peter is saying on this day, he said, David is dead. But what David knew and what David wrote about was that there was going to be a better and greater David. That one has come. And it is Jesus. What we are searching for is not an idea or philosophy of life. We're not looking for a religion to give us rules or advice for a better life or anything, success, wealth, achievement, and even the best of earthly relationships. He said David knew it. David spoke of it. Where is joy and meaning and gladness found? It is at the right hand of God. Where Jesus is. This Jesus brings us there. That's life with Jesus. Everything must come back to Jesus. Everything must come under Jesus. From one angle, Peter's whole sermon is simply showing us that because of the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus is Lord. You could summarize the message of Christianity in those three words. You know, what's the most this is a trivia question. What's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110. Jesus himself quoted it. Peter quotes it here. Psalm 110. It's in verses 
34 and 35. It says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 says, there's the Lord. There are, there are three categories of, of people in the universe. There is the Lord. There is all who call upon the Lord. And there are the enemies. And until you call upon the Lord, it says you're one of the enemies. And we all say, I'm not an enemy of Jesus. How am I an enemy of Jesus? This becomes clear only in the cross. Because here's what happens when the Lord comes to earth. The creator, the king over everything comes in person to bring humanity, humanity back to himself. And humanity crucifies him. But the gospel shows us that the, the enmity, the hostility is not on God's side but is on our side. You could sum up the whole ministry, the whole life, the death of Jesus, his resurrection and ascension as proclaiming one thing to the human race and to all of us. God is not your enemy. That is the lie beneath all other lies, that God does not love us and doesn't have our best interests in mind. Your true enemies are your self-centeredness, your independence, your sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Anything and everything that would keep you away from God and knowing that he loves you. He made you for joy in his presence and he's calling you home. Did you know that's the key to Christian obedience? When we see that God is not and can never be our enemy, then we can gladly submit everything to him and place our entire lives under him. And everything God asks us to do, he's never our enemy. He is our most, most faithful friend. Romans 5.10 says, While we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus says, here's what I do for my enemies. I've died in their place to give them life. Under my lordship, Jesus says to us, bring it all under my name. Here's what I will do. I will expose and defeat all your true enemies. As you place everything under me, I will strip them of their power. I will end their rule and dominion and oppression over your life. And one day I will vanquish them forever. Everything must come under the name of Jesus. Lastly, we'll close with this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be. It's a promise to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus the Lord will be saved, will be rescued, delivered, liberated from all that is ultimately not for your good and for his glory. In conclusion, in his conclusion, Peter emphasizes the ground for this certainty. In verse 36, he says, here it is. Here's the conclusion. You can know with certainty this, that this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. Back in Luke 1.4, Luke, who's the author of Acts, he shared the reason he wrote these two books. He said there, he said, dear Theophilus, he's writing to this person, Theophilus, I'm writing to you so that you might know with certainty 
with certainty the things you have been taught. Let me tell you some things that are not certain. Your circumstances tomorrow. Your finances. The emotional world that you have and inhabit. How much progress you'll make in this life, spiritually, uncertain. It's uncertain how your relationships will turn out. It's uncertain how long you will live on this earth. All of that is uncertain. Peter says, there is one thing that can help you endure all of those uncertainties. There is one thing you can cling to and hold on to and count on that is the certainty. The certainty that will keep you in the embrace of your heavenly Father. And that is this one. This Jesus is Lord and Christ. Call upon him. He will be your certainty. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can be certain you call to us. And if we call to you simply in desperation and in our need, we can be certain you are a sufficient Savior. You are a rescuer. And I pray this morning that as we are hearing this sermon, this great sermon that Peter preached, that we would get to that place in our own hearts. Well, what should we do? And you'll meet us again with the the freeing, the liberating, the message like no other message. That what we do is turn our lives back towards you and flee into the name of Jesus, our Savior. I pray that those who don't know that message, who have never turned, would turn even today, even now. I pray for those of us who have forgotten that in all sorts of ways, that we would turn again and receive rescuing, saving, and freeing grace. We pray in the only powerful, in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.